In this interview, I had the pleasure of talking with my good friend, Lauren Roche. Lauren is an author, a translator, and has been teaching meditation since 1968. In our discussion, we cover the multidimensional meanings of Sanskrit, Lauren's early years as a renegade meditation teacher in the 60s, the possibilities and the dangers of meditation, the oppressed spiritual genius of women, and why each individual has a unique personal doorway to the meditative state. So without further ado, here is Lauren Roche. Lauren, thanks so much for coming on. It's great to talk with you. You're welcome. It's good to hang with you, Steve. For the uh, people listening who might not know who you are, I thought I'd just introduce you a little bit. And if there's anything you want to add to what I'm saying, um, you can go ahead. Uh, Lauren is an author, translator, and meditation teacher since 1968. He has a PhD from the University of California at Irvine, where his research focused on the language meditators used to describe their inner experiences. And his MA was in the hazards of meditation, the management of meditation-induced ab reactions, which is something I'd like to ask about a bit later. Um, he's written seven books, two of which he co-authored with his wife, Camille. And the latest of these is a translation of the Vijnana Bhairava Tantra called The Radiant Sutras, published with Sounds True. He also runs a 200-hour Yoga Alliance certified meditation teacher training based on the Radiant Sutras. Well, I'd like to first of all uh, talk a bit about your translation of the Vishnana Bharava Tantra, your, your Radiant Sutras. And I heard um, it's said often that translation is always necessarily also interpretation, especially with a language like Sanskrit, which I understand is very multifaceted and with a text like the one you worked with there, which is as much poetic as it is technical. I'm just, uh, I'm just curious, what is it about Sanskrit that's so unique in that regard? Um, and can you tell us about the process that you went through to arrive at your translations? I know you've told me that story before, and it's quite, uh, it's quite a process you went through. Yeah, well, I, I call what I do a version or a rendition rather than a translation because in a sense it's a it's sort of a crime to say that you're translating hmm. there's the pretentiousness to it if and yet I love translations I read them all the time hmm. it Sanskrit was engineered to have many dimensions of meaning. On one level, it's music, and it impacts the body immediately on a level of music. And you, you can almost read the sensations in your body at times and sense the meaning of the Sanskrit. There's an impact. It's also packed with imagery. So a word might have a series of images. And then it's packed with a kind of map of the universe. So one word of Sanskrit, a word such as yoga, or the word rasa, it, it might have a meaning that's cosmic that pertains to some universal quality and then mm. something that's very earthy, like a position in sex or right. something to do with sex. So, And then something to do with all kinds of craft. For example, the word yoga might have something to do with horses and the whole idea of linking things together. And if you think about it, like to ancient people, like a horse to them was what an airplane and a car and a train and a bicycle is to us. It's just this fantastic means of transportation, but it's a living thing. So it's magic. 
horses were magic. And the mm -hmm. technology of how to saddle a horse was just life transforming. Mm -hmm. And so there's all these technical skills and fingertip skills having to do with saddling up a horse. And people were revered who were light-fingered. That is, they could just, they would be holding the reins and they would make the teeniest little invisible movement. And the horse knew exactly what the rider wanted because they're in telepathic rapport. And that's all there in the word yoga. It's when you link things together, it's a relationship. And the idea in yoga is linking together body and soul. Your sexuality and your personal power and your heart and your ability to express yourself and your mind and your soul, linking them all together. And what's the relationship? What kind of relationship do you have? Is it one of domination and submission? You know, is it like old school child rearing or way with people with horses where you just beat a beat, one continuous beat down? Or is it that magic like of horse whispering where there's people that just walk up to horses and touch them lightly and then jump on and they can ride without even a bridle just by the lightest touch on the mane. So what kind of relationship? And because these words are ancient and the meditation traditions are ancient, there's every kind of relationship is being taught from the creepiest beatdown domination, submission, as if we imported somebody from the year 200 BC to just lord it over us all, to the most brilliant, the most generous, the most um, sort of glorious, we're all equally at home in the universe kind of teachings. So. the cultures of East and West met long ago and they've been meeting and inspiring each other for thousands of years and we're in an advanced stage of the East, the wisdom traditions of the East impacting the Western world and we're learning to receive and in in what we're receiving is are many many levels of information and there's people there are people representing all of those styles and it's all there in the sanskrit so one word will have this multiple dimensions of meaning hmm. so you're saying that the the sanskrit itself contains the possibility of that kind of disciplining um, uh, dominant submission sort of approach to yoga or whatever the investigation may be as well as contains the possibility of those lighter touches well the yeah the uh-huh well the bhairava tantra it is as possible as much as is possible for them to be is sort of generous and egalitarian yeah. in saying, whoever you are, here's 112 totally different approaches to meditation. Wherever you are, here's a doorway for you. Are you, are you lonely? Go ahead and enter that sensation, that current, that longing in your heart. Go deep into that and through it, and you'll find me you'll find the one lover. Are you out of breath? Well, just take a breath and inside the rhythm of breathing, you can find the deliciousness, the 
the spirit of creation? Are you horny? Right there inside of that desire is the movement of the universe. Are you in the middle of an orgasm? Are you missing your lover? Like right there inside that memory of that kiss, that embrace, right there is the movement of the universe. Are you scared? Are you at a feast? Are you ecstatic? Are you exhausted? Are you dancing? Like wherever you are, there's a doorway. So the text itself is incredibly generous. And what I've done is that over the last 50 years since I met the text, I've just been pl at play with it. It's been inspiring me for half a century now somehow. And when I first started teaching meditation back in the 60s, I would actually sit with people and just let them talk. Well, tell me about your natural meditative states. Mm -hmm. And they say, well, gardening or walking the dog or hiking in nature and then sitting and looking out over the forests or fishing or being standing in the river, fly fishing or making love or surfing or walking at night in the wilderness, just navigating by starlight alone, and then sitting under a tree, kind of scared, listening to the wolves howl, kind of ecstatic, and feeling at home under the stars. I would just listen to people talk. I'd say, what, what are your natural meditative states? And listen for an hour. Give a person a chance to just really to get into it, to enter that state and tell me about it. And then I would let them browse through the first English translation of the Bhairavatantra and, and spot the ones that sound like their native experience. Huh. And everyone I've ever talked to already knows something about one of the 112 classic approaches to meditation. They don't usually think of it as meditation. Hmm. Like a woman that knows how to hold babies and maybe spent an hour at two in the morning holding a baby, sitting there herself in a state between waking and sleeping, just gushing love and being in the space of holding, she wouldn't think of that as meditation, but I do. Mm. Because when people contact the soul in their own way, whether it's gardening, holding babies, making love, surfing, they glow in a special way. And everybody can see it. You sense the radiance shining from this person whatever their mode of contact is. They're so glad to be alive. They're in that sense of, oh my God, this is like such a perfect moment. I was born for this. If, if this was my last moment, it would be okay because it's so perfect. That's the way people feel when they're in their natural meditative state. Like this is, mm -hmm. I'm being me. And so I'd let people explore those states. And then towards the end of the session, realize, oh, that's one of the classical meditation techniques. Because it's nice to know. And, yes. then, and then I would coach them, begin to coach them in how do we develop a daily practice of meditation that feels like you. Because people are so amazingly different. It's stupefying how different people are. And it takes 
every molecule of attention that the teacher or the coach has to discern individual uniqueness and to discern the way that that particular person already knows something, maybe a lot, about contact with the soul. Mm. That's uh, quite a different access to a lot of the way that meditation is presented as a sort of uh, method or a, a body of, uh, of disciplining approaches that is, is made to rein in and tame a fundamentally unruly mind. Yeah, well, you just said rain. Right. You just used the word rain, which comes from horses. Mm. And so that's what I'm talking about. There's the word yoga and the word yama. And there's a word yama that's used in yoga. Yama, pranayama, niyama. It means rain. The word yama means rain, a bridle. In that word rain, there's an infinity of relationships. Yes, from the light touch. To yeah, the, from the lightest you know. touch to a prison. And there's many kinds of rain. Like there's a kind of a cord. There's kind of a rain between us and our iPhones. Like uh -huh. there's a sensation of walking out the house, out of the house without your phone. Yes, it pulls like, on you. you. It tugs. It, pull, it tugs on you. Yeah. <laughs> So that's a rain, yeah. a bridle, and there's a relate. There's a there's a kind of a connection between us and the lover. If you're making love with somebody, or you're adoring somebody, there's a connection between you and them. And after a while, you'll miss them, and there's kind of a tug on your heart. And parents are this way with their kids. And people are this way with their dogs. There's a, mm. it's a relationship, and so and the relationship is, it's like infinitely nuanced. One of the things that's going on in meditation a lot is that people, by the millions, are meditating, and inside themselves, they're in a relationship that's just like their relationship with their mother and father. And, and kindergarten teacher and maybe an abusive lover, a controlling lover. When, when I interview people who've been meditating for years and often mm -hmm. meditation teachers, when I actually give, listen for an hour and ask questions, just keep, keep, get them talk, keep them talking about what they're actually doing inside, it's exactly like their outer relationships. They're and they're nagging themselves. They're saying, "Why can't you be better?" Their their inner critical voices have adopted Buddhism or Hinduism, some yes. version of it. Why can't you be born attached? Why are you having those desires? Why this? Why that? There's a continuous low level of criticism going on. So that's what they're practicing. This is very common. And because the inner critical voices have now disguised themselves as spiritual teachings, it's basically invisible to the person. And it often yeah. takes the meditation teachers years to figure out, oh my God, I'm not practicing meditation. I'm practicing being locked in a closet with my mother when she's in a really bad mood. I'm practicing being locked in the closet with my both my parents when they're really disappointed in me. Yes. So meditation is an intimate internal relationship. And what's really wild is that most people don't know what they're doing in there. Because it's invisible. People meditators are as clueless as we all are when we're married or whatever. Mm. <laughs> How did I get here? What am I doing? How did this happen? How did this go south so quickly? <laughs> Again. Again. It's exactly an intimate relationship. Mm. And uh, it's, 
but people in general have their eyes closed and it decorated with this language. Something in your bio it says here, um, you, you write the instincts, hunting, exploring, resting, feeding, playing, nesting, bonding, seem to guide the flow of attention during meditation. Paradoxically, the aim of many spiritually oriented meditation techniques is to damage or suppress the instincts. People are often injured in subtle ways by doing the wrong meditation. This goes undiagnosed because the very idea that meditation can be harmful is counterintuitive. And your MA um, in the hazards of meditation and the man management of meditation-induced injury, really, um, seems to link in here. Well, yeah. This whole field of knowledge, a sense of how dangerous meditation can be, like it not it's not dangerous like a car crash. It's dangerous like a bad relationship, a bad marriage. Mm -hmm. Um it it nobody wants to hear this. It's really funny. What happened was I was teaching through a giant worldwide meditation organization and it turned into a creepy cult so quickly. Within a couple of years, it turned into this um, just insipid, robotic cult. Everybody was running around quoting, quoting the guru. And they say, the guru says, and it would always be something just hideous. So I, I left. I just stopped teaching for them. And, um, and then I was a well-known renegade, just unbeknownst to me. Apostate. Yeah. Um, I was surfing, so I wasn't really thinking about it. I had plenty to do, but I be, was famous for um, being a rebel. So all these people who were having trouble with their practice started coming to me for sessions. And chiropractors and doctors were recommending people to me. Because at the time in Los Angeles, there were tens of thousands of of highly experienced meditators and people who just coming back from India, people who were as meditating four hours a day and doing exotic practices. So I had this full-time private practice seeing people who would come with this, these weird problems. Like they would have just come back from India and they just couldn't reintegrate with daily life. Huh. Or they, a classic situation would be for the first two years I was meditating, I just felt I was getting better and better. And then the next two years I was on a plateau. In the last two years, I feel like I'm getting worse and worse. Yes. Like what's going on? So what I would do and these two hour, I was doing two hour sessions at the time, was I would just listen and take a full spiritual inventory. And nobody had ever listened to these people. And meditators, meditators require that. They deserve it. They deserve it and they need it and nobody ever gets it. I would just listen for two hours and ask little gentle questions like, what happened then? Like, when, what spark in you led you to begin meditating? And then, when did you, when was that first moment when you started to feel like this isn't working anymore? And then, uh huh, and then let them talk for half an hour or something. And then, well, were you pushing away your own instinct? Like, what happened? in the struggle between your inner sense, this isn't working, and then your belief in the guru or your belief in the technique. Tell me about that mm -hmm. internal struggle. And then what did it take for you to get you to come here? Like what fears did you have or what, what hope did you have? And I would just ask leading questions and listen and listen and listen. And 
every pretty much every person said, oh "My God, no meditation teacher has ever listened to me before." Mm-hmm. I've just been practicing for thousands of hours. So what's really it's just some random technique, and I didn't know what was going on. And my teacher, who just has a warehouse full of people, but he has no idea of he had no idea what was going on with me and didn't want to know. So I did this for years and it was astounding because I had had no idea that other meditation teachers were stuck in that way. Um, it was the first time that I had done in-depth work like that with other meditation teachers and people like me who had been meditating for their entire adult lives. I mean, I was 25. <laughs> My adult life was five years. <laughs> so I've been, I've been meditating for seven years since I was a teenager. But that was my – go ahead, Steve. So this was the early 70s then, early mid-70s. Mid-70s, yeah. You've just come out of this this organization. I don't know if you want to mention the organization. No, it's, no, it's a creepy cult. Better not to mention. Okay. This di- uh, dialogue approach that you're talking about, this listening and drawing out, uh, it's not part It's not part of that of that previous approach that you've been steeped in, is it? So where no. did you get that? Where did, where did that come from, the idea to actually listen it sort of seems straightforward when you say it but as you say it's not exactly uh the most common approach it's not it was completely coincidental when when i start i started meditating sort of by accident so to speak in a science lab at the university of california huh. and I was a control subject, so they just put me in a dark room and left me there for hours in pitch black, total silence, wired up to a brainwave machine. And as it turns out, I went into meditation spontaneously. I had no instructions, and in 1968, people weren't talking about meditation very much. So I don't think I'd ever heard the word meditation, or at least I had never noticed it. I think it it was there but I hadn't even given it a thought. So I wound up working in this science lab that was doing research on meditation. And then I wound up doing interviews with people about their experiences as part of different research projects. So I was trained to listen as part of the scientific research. Mm. And that's what tipped me off to this thing of listening, to the joy of listening. And if you, if you don't know how to listen to people talk about their favorite experiences, consider learning. It's amazing. Pretty mm-hmm. much any human being, you can ask them, tell me about like the greatest experience you've ever had. Tell me about the most relaxed you've ever felt. Tell me about the most thrilled you've ever been to be alive. And if you really genuinely can listen, people will go on and on and on, and they'll tell you their secrets. So anyway, I, as part of the scientific research, I had gotten tipped off to this. And so it just seemed natural with these people that were coming to me. Also, I didn't know what to do. Right. These people were coming to me in with faith, in good faith. Yeah. And the these doctors and chiropractors and nutritionists were sending these pe- people to me in faith. And so it it's like I had no idea what to do. Sure, I was twenty five and basically I had just been teaching meditation for five years. Um, and, uh, that was my level of skill. That's all I knew. And here's somebody, maybe a 30 or 40 year old person who'd been meditating as long as me, 
with, with at that time I'd been meditating for seven years mm. and I had been on advanced courses. So I had maybe spent a year of that time or more meditating all day, every day doing yoga and meditating. Mm. So it was a, it was like one triathlete meeting another triathlete. It was, mm -hmm. We're talking about, you know, sort of fanatic level of intensive practice. So I would just listen because I had no clue, like, oh, holy shit, here's this person. They're in trouble. And they've come to me after thinking about it for God knows how long. They went to this chiropractor. They went to a doctor. No one has a clue. But the people who referred this person to me had a hunch that they're mm -hmm. doing the wrong kind of meditation. Mm -hmm. When I would... When I would talk to these chiropractors and naturopaths and acupuncturists and doctors who were referring people to me, they'd be going, well, this guy's got some, like he can't digest anything, but I have a feeling he's doing the wrong meditation. And also when I talk to him about diet, say, dude, you need to start eating meat or whatever, it's like talking to a religious fanatic. Their head yeah. is so full of yoga jargon that they can't hear a word that I'm saying. And I don't have time to sit and deconstruct their this weird map of the world that they've built. So I had to invent it from scratch out of necessity. And there's that saying, necessity is the mother of invention. Mm -hmm. So here's all these people and everyone was completely different. They were practicing something with total sincerity and it wasn't working. And so over the years, I built up a map of what they were doing wrong. Like mm -hmm. in a simple, like there was this woman who was meditating and she had read Herbert Benson's book and he said, just use a random mantra. And so she picked the word down because she was thinking of like a down jacket. Oh, yeah. But she was getting depressed from that. Right. And so I said, oh, well, pick a new mantra for yourself. That was all it was. She was feeling down. That yeah. was just her brain, her body interpreted down as going down. And she was just feeling depressed from meditation. Um, another woman had been meditating a perfect amount of time for her body, which is about 20 minutes. Hmm. And her father was a Zen practitioner. Her father and mother were both hardcore Zen people. This, this young woman was 20, and for her body, a little bit less than 20 minutes was a profound meditation. Also, she's very fast, like to get. So she was talking with her father. She said, oh, I've been meditating. And he goes, well, oh, yeah, how long do you meditate? She goes, 20 minutes. He goes, right. he goes that's nothing. He says, exactly. it doesn't even count unless you meditate for 45 minutes. So yeah, she yeah. started meditating for 45 minutes which made her feel completely stoned. And she walked around, she said she walked around all day as if she had a, ha a glass of wine and some marijuana, just feeling loopy. Mm -hmm. But if she doesn't meditate, she felt jangly and like she's missing out. And all she needed to do was meditate for 20 minutes. She mm -hmm. let an external authority override her natural instinct for how to meditate. And that's the key, is it, to to what you're saying? There's somehow this uh, this trust in the uh, in the relationship that's available to the individual meditator. Because let me ask you this: you know, I've I've heard you say in conversation with me before, uh, we've chatted, and you've said this is a approximation. You've said something along the lines of your. Um, uh, um, a coach and you have 
you don't have a problem with people coming to you who are more advanced meditators, whatever that might mean, than you. You don't seem to see that as yeah. a problem. You don't feel you need to be sort of uh, more advanced. And that does fly in the face of a lot of the more, uh, I don't know if we should say traditional or common or widespread models where the teacher is the master who's permanently above his students in terms of attainment, knowledge and rank. And he has the trump card often of lineage to further uh, cement that cement that sort of position. Um, and it seems to me that your open, uh, if I might say, uh, happy ignorance in terms of, well, I don't know necessarily what to do. I don't have the answer here. That kind of thing pr produced this creative approach that seemed to get into places where the more formal lineage-based sort of top-down models um, didn't seem to have access. Do you th what, what do you think about lineage, um, these ideas, such as in the Tibetan model, it's very emphasized, institutions and, and, and things of that sort, uh, just to throw a bit of a curveball in there? Well, you know, to each their own. Like uh -huh. certain people, some people like, like to be in a domination submission relationship. It's comforting. Mm -hmm. And, uh, um, and, you know, it's an individual difference. And there's, you know, I love the Tibetans. And, um, My model is more of a wide open inquiry. Mm. And I would suggest that it's actually part of the lineage is this open discussion and exploration. There are all these tools that we've inherited from at least 2,500 years of exploration from the monastic traditions. Mm. And now we're in a very different world. Most of the practitioners in the Western world are females, mm -hmm. they're, they're women. And the ones I know are brilliant, sincere, hardworking, multitasking, you know, they all, it's like every woman has eight arms and they like to use them all every day. Yes. And I think they're way ahead of us in many ways and also I don't think that meditation teachers are necessarily very good meditators. They just like being in that position or they just randomly wound up in that position. It's teaching in any field is, is its own skill. Like the tennis coach is not necessarily the best tennis player. And the voice coach, like all the people that you hear singing on the radio or podcast, whoever you, however you get music, they all have voice coaches that you've never heard of. Right. And what's great about the coaching model is that the coach wants their students to thrive and doesn't need, doesn't need to be worshipped, doesn't need people bowing down to them. The coach wants their students to thrive. Like all the actors that we see in movies and TV, they all have or had acting coaches. Mm -hmm. And the, the coaches are thrilled that their students are out there thriving. So this model, the old model, that the guru is someone that you worship, it's all glory to the guru, that's... That's a facet, that's one small part of the meditation traditions, it's like the public face. But it's really only a tiny part. In a way, the, um, that aspect, what you, what you were mentioning, the authoritarian structure, in a way it's like the supporting beams, if we look at a a building and there's these support pillars there's posts and pillars that support the weight hmm. in a sense the, the the authoritarian structure is like the posts 
that are mm-hmm. holding the roof up. It's the space, the open space that's inside the classroom or the lecture hall. That's where things happen. The, mm-hmm. rig- the rigid structure provides a framework and, and keeps the rain or hail or snow off or the sun. It protects everybody. Right. But it's not where the electricity is happening. It's not where the teaching is happening. So the, the rigidity of the master-slave relationship or master-disciple and that, that's, that serves to preserve the structure of the teaching, like pillars and a roof and mm. like the cement or the stone of the foundation. It's something that you walk on. The, the actual teaching takes place in the emptiness. The, the, what a room is, what a lecture hall is, or a meditation hall is, it's an empty space. And therefore people can come in and be there. So there's a relationship of formal structure and, and informality and the, the informality has not been emphasized. The formality has been emphasized almost ex- exclusively. Mm. But the free inquiry is not. Like it be, and in fact, every single item, every thought, every image, every mantra, every technique, every value in the meditation traditions needs to be completely questioned and run through at first, the first filter is, is this appropriate for modern women? Because there's almost none of the teachers in the past were female. There's almost no sense of what does a female body need. So one of the first filter is, is this appropriate for the majority of our students who are women? Mm. Then is it appropriate for non-Hindu or non-Buddhist women? Is it appropriate for women who have families or want to have families? Is it appropriate for women who have jobs who are on the path of intimacy as opposed to the path of renunciation? And so there's a series. Is it appropriate for men who love women as opposed to men who aspire to be monastic? Mm. So there's a series of filters. And we need to if reevaluate every single thought particle that we've received from the ancient traditions in light of all this. Because meditation is important. All these techniques, all of them, are ways of accessing our internal resources. And therefore, they belong to everyone. Meditation is a built-in human instinct that everyone has access to. It's the most natural thing in the world. When people discover their own style of meditation, it's more natural than sitting on the sofa listening to your favorite music. It's the most natural thing in the world. It's such a breath of fresh air. It's such a sigh of relief. And... We need, we need people to have access to this inner peace so that when they walk around in the outer world, they spread that peace. The world needs that. We need people to have access to enlightenment, to their own natural enlightenment. We don't need more people to be enslaved by an ancient tradition of meditation that corrals people and keeps them suppressed and mildly repressed, but doesn't let them shine forth with enlightenment. That's sort of being, that's being done. We don't need well, more let, of let that. Me, let me uh, play devil's advocate. Shouldn't these women who want to have jobs and families and so on, shouldn't they, you know, get with the program and, uh, become properly spiritual and, you know, uh, renounce, renounce uh, 
all of those things, isn't it then that's the problem? And the traditions are really the path to the higher transcendence and so on? Well, that is the point of view of quite a few males that are in the mm. traditions. It's that all of us are a lesser form of life, but yeah. we're needed because we, we're a source for them to be in the real estate business. You know, the money that we provide lets them accumulate real estate holdings and temples and mm -hmm. they need us. But we're like, bre we're breeders. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's a source of raw material. There's a natural contempt. Mm. Like there's a dog and cat thing. Yeah. The, the contempt that a cat has for a dog and for everybody else. There's a kind of a contempt that renunciates have for the rest of us, a superiority. Where do you think that content comes from? Well, if you had to guess, there's a lot of reasons why people might renounce the world. Yeah. But um, in general, to take vows of celibacy and poverty and obedience, which are the basic vows of a monk, you cut yeah. yourself off from everyday life. And so, Feeling superior is kind of a side effect of that, and it's a protection against depression. Mm. It's dangerous. It's dangerous to not be feel superior, because then you risk you risk depression and a sense of meaninglessness. So when people are arrogant or secretly superior like i'm 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 closer to god than you are i'm i'm more spiritual yeah. than you are it's you don't know what they're protecting them what they're protecting themselves from yeah i see so this is you're saying you're you're implying renunciation can can be a kind of a kind of a, a carapace against something that one might protect oneself from we don't know like i've met i've talked in some depth with Tibetans who, who fled Tibet and the grief mm. they felt over losing their country and their friends, the grief over losing their friends, the people, yes. their whole community being tortured to death, that they've escaped, their survivor guilt, that's a, the what the hell am I doing here guilt. Yeah. If they run around the West teaching whatever they teach, they've these people have problems. Yeah. And they're just trying to get through the day. Like what they know how to do or what they're expected to do is teach Tibetan Buddhism. And like everybody's in trouble. The Dalai Lama is so great because he talks about this. Mm. He's so He's like the honest meditation teacher. He's so wonderful the way he talks about that. Um, mm. But ev everybody's in trouble. All these people are just people trying to get through the day. And their day job might be pretending to be, un be enlightened. <laughs> Even tulkus have problems, do they? Totally. Totally. All these people late at night freak out. Mm -hmm. you know, after midnight or two in the morning, they're all freaking out, just like anybody. Like, what am I doing? What's Buddha think of me? Mm. Um, so there's there are problems to people that are they are denigratingly called householders. I call them the path of intimacy. But there's something fundamentally wrong with people who are in the path of love, who have a job and a lover studying with somebody who's a monk or a nun. It's, it's a basic mismatch, and there's going to be problems. Right. What sort of problems, what, what are the sort of signs that you've noticed uh, over the years of that sort of a mismatch of a person who isn't uh, doesn't know that there's this natural access to meditation you're talking about that they have 
a portal available to them, let's say. To well, this, it's just basically intimacy. undermining. Mm -hmm. It weakens monastic or nun teachings. They weaken the ego. They believe in weakening the ego. And if you're really spiritual, you'll renounce it all and join an ashram or a nunnery. Can you give an example of, of one of those sorts of approaches? Um, ask me something more specific. Well, what would be an ego-weakening um, renunciation direction kind of practice that would be commonly practiced by by people who aren't in that direction, and they'd often find themselves uh, in a mismatch there? Oh, well, in meditation, we we witness the flow of thought and desire. So if you're a nun or a monk and you're witnessing the flow of desire, you just to keep your sanity, you have to learn to deny or dissolve the desires rather than act on them. Mm. If you're a monk and you've taken a vow of celibacy and you're sitting there and you feel horny, you have to do something with that sexual energy. You right. have to dissolve it or deny it or send it somewhere else or convert it. And the best monks will do alchemy with it. They'll convert <clears throat> that sexual desire into a liveliness of presence. It's a high skill. Mm. But you don't live it out. You've taken a vow to not live out your desires. Whereas if you're on the path of intimacy, you, you need to cherish your desires and practice, in a sense, the opposite skill, live out your desires where possible. Because it's a lot of work to live out any desire, and it's, a, it's an entirely different game. If you, are free, if you have freedom, and you have a job, and you have a lover, or friends, and say you have a desire like, I want to go to Nepal, or I want to, I want to go on vacation in Hawaii, or I want to go... Uh -huh on a trek, or I want to go to Bali, or I want to go to New York, or I want to go to London. It takes so much work to line all your ducks up in a row to go to London, or if you're in London, to go to LA. It's so much work. You have to save money, you have to clear your schedule, you have to get a visa, you have to right. buy a ticket, you have to coordinate with your friends. Are they going to be there? Can they come? Are they going to be there? You have to get go on Airbnb. You have to find a place to stay or stay with your friend. You have to rent a car. You have to remind yourself to drive on the correct side of the road, depending on which country you're in. You have to have insurance. There is so much work involved in fulfilling any desire. And that's the, that's the game for people who are on the path of intimacy. It's getting together with your friends and fulfilling desires together. Mm. It's a whole different way of living than being a renunciate. And for people who are on the path of intimacy to be around renunciates is undermining because it's very dangerous and damaging to young people to internalize a suspicious attitude toward their own ego and to internalize the monk style of spiritual language. Like a passivity and kind of a suspicious take on your own desire nature. Mm. Young people need to be out there going for it, starting businesses, having relationships, you know, trying things, failing, dancing, getting, going to Burning Man or whatever. You need to be out there living and learning from experience and not turning away from experience because it doesn't seem spiritual. Mm. You want to go for it. So for people on the path of love, you meditate and then go for it. You cherish, you simmer with desire when you meditate. You celebrate every desire. 
You celebrate every impulse to jump up out of meditation and go dancing or go start a business or go grab your friend and say, let's go surfing or let's go rollerblading or let's go skateboarding or let's go check out this new club or let's go check out this new restaurant or let's go see this movie or let's go to work or let's go to coffee. You meditate as a way of energizing and centering yourself and then go and live. So it's a completely different philosophy. What about, uh, to play devil's advocate once again, what about this suspicion that somehow going with this desire, this uh, these uh, impulses will lead to some sort of ruinous end, you know, that really we ought to uh, uh, corral these uh, wild, uh, sinful uh Impulses. You, you know. just use another horse. You use another horse metaphor. Corral. Uh -huh. Yeah. Well, meditation is a corral. That's what you're doing when you meditate. Uh, you're not acting out. This yeah. is the time to get to know all your desires, all your wildness, all your rebellion, all of your passion. Meditation is the time to feel everything and let it roar that's your time to really get to know what's happening inside and celebrate every get to know all the inner people all those impulses let them roar and flow freely because you're sitting there on your sofa that's what meditation is for it's a safe space to feel everything and let your chakras talk to each other. Let, let your, every part of your body talk to every other part of your body. That's what it's for. After meditation, then you're full of yourself. You've, there's just a hum of electricity. And then you do your regular life. Yeah. I don't find, I, I spent the last 50 years in lengthy conversations with meditators of every kind and just regular people wanting to meditate. And people are not running amok. <laughs> They're not. It's, they feel their desires and then it's like having had a massage or gone for a long run. You just, then you just go and do your daily life with an extra bit of pizzazz. What meditation mm. gives, when people feel their wildness and let all the chakras just spin and vibrate and hum and connect with each other, what people do is they just go and love and work and play and laugh. Mm. The, the, um, the dangerous part, the running amok, that comes primarily from repression not from ex expression. Uh, I see. And the uh, that's what I that's what I love about the way you talk about meditation is this tremendously counterculture life affirming by counterculture I mean counter the cultures we've been discussing you know of of this sort of authoritarian style um, life affirming emphasis it's such a spanner in the works. Yeah, I have a hunch at this text the Vijnana Bhairava Tantra, mm -hmm. that it comes from a householder tradition. It mm -hmm. comes from this little time and space when women and men were practicing together and women were cherished as the spiritual geniuses that they are. And in this tradition, there's a saying that women can accomplish in a week what it takes a man a year to do in terms of realization. And I've seen this my whole life, that women will just step into their enlightenment. It's, and in a way, it takes a man a year. Hmm. Um, Let me ask you about that, yeah. Lauren, because there are, there are uh, ideas that to, you know, for it, to put it uh, somewhat uh, archaically, that women are a lower birth than men. 
And there are some traditions that say women can't be enlightened because they're women and the best they can hope for is to sort of be reborn as a man and maybe they'll have the chance then. Absolutely. And even in the Vijnana Bhairava Tantra, uh, Devi is asking Bhairava or Shakti or Shiva's wife is asking Shiva for that uh, meditative instruction as he, as he sort of sits there and uh, you know does all that sort of thing. So you seem to be saying, and you said it earlier, that women are uh, cherished as, uh, I think you said, spiritual geniuses. So where does how do you how does that get reconciled there with these other views? Well, like I said, we're we're in the process of interacting with the ancient traditions, mm. and so every thought that has ever been thunk is represented in the traditions. In other words, they made uh-huh. records. We have access to how people thought. And so yes. there's actually tens of thousands of different techniques. Tens of thousands. And there's tens of thousands of different superstitions. And superstition means something left over. Yeah. I forget the exact etymology, but superstitia, it's like it's something left over from the past. So in the past systems for whatever reason, there there was this war between the sexes and the men temporarily had control. So their idea was that women are such a lesser birth that it would take hundreds of lifetimes of being submissive and serving a guru, being a slave to a guru hundred for hundreds of lifetimes and then you could earn being born as a man. I mean, it's the it's a system of oppression. And meditators who are open to Tibetan Buddhism or the ancient teachings of India wind up being open to these ancient superstitions, these oppressive uh-huh. beliefs. And each of us has to develop an immune response. It's like drinking, learning to drink the water in a third world country. You, we each have to develop some kind of an immune system to protect us from these pathogens and parasites that will take over. When that's the trouble with studying in an ancient tradition is that the par- the mind parasites that are in that tradition will try to find a way into your bloodstream or your brain and and inhabit you and take 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 you over and what is the vaccine for that how how can how that can one engage question. with these with these traditions and and have some sense of uh, sense of that it's the right giving yourself the right to talk back to the traditions Mm-hmm. Giving yourself the right to ask what's appropriate for me now. Giving yourself the right to ignore ninety-nine point nine 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 percent of the tradition and say even say no to it. Giving yourself the right to pick and choose. Giving yourself the right to construct a system that lets you thrive in your daily life. We need, meditation is important, and it can produce astounding results in terms of people feeling lit up and empowered and living their daily life, whether it's just raising kids, teaching kindergarten, being a massage therapist, being a therapist, being a a professor, being a surfer, being an actor, being a politician. Meditation can produce stunning results in terms of mm-hmm. lighting people up and letting them radiate that light into the world. And it's important. But meditation, because it's ancient and because there's tens of thousands of techniques, can also be like drugs, where people will take a drug and it temporarily lets, frees them from pain, but then they're addicted to that painkiller. There's a, yes. a level where meditation is like a mild drug, which unbalances um, your body chemistry. 
I feel like we could talk about these things uh, for many, many hours. <laughs> yeah, we could. It's like we're just getting started. I feel that way, yeah. Um, but I, I, I'm sure you have to go. Well, what I would say to anybody is know that there's over a hundred different gateways into meditation. Like that's the short, the short form is about a hundred. And there's eating and there's dancing and there's wandering in nature and there's looking at the stars and there's sex and there's thinking about sex and there's breathing and there's listening to music and innumerable forms of that. And there's all of the classical meditation practices. All of these practices are ways, in a sense, of making love with the life force, with this mysterious dynamic of energy that's always flowing through us. And you, whoever you are, you have as much right to this life force as anybody alive and anybody ever has lived. Find what works for you, explore, and build your practice out of what makes you thrive. That's wonderful. Lauren, where uh, where can people find out more about you? Where can they contact you? I know you have your 200-hour Yoga Alliance certified meditation course based from this perspective on the Radiant Sutras. Uh, whereabouts on the internet can people find you and get in touch? There's laurenroche.com. Apparently, I'm the only Lauren Roche in the world. So if you just type Lauren Roche, you'll find me. And there's radiancesutras.com. If you want to go in through the book. And there's meditationtt.com. But go in through any, any portal and start exploring and build your own approach to meditation. And if you want coaching, I'm here and I have students around the world who can help you out. Some people can learn from books. Some people can learn from listening, from audiobooks. Some people thrive just on personal coaching. So all this information is available for, for free. Just get one of my books from a library. Or you can listen online to lots of stuff. Or you can spend money for high-quality education. It's worth it. Mm. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Lauren. Those links will all be in the in the description underneath this audio for anyone who wants to find out more about Lauren, perhaps work with him. Certainly everyone should get a copy of the Radiant Sutras from Sounds True. Really wonderful rendering of that text and thank you so much Lauren for for joining me thank you Steve what a pleasure 